folks i'm your host anthony tyler we're broadcasting here on the fringe fm initially don't forget to check out uh my website divemind.net my books dive manual hunt manual if you've been uh digging this true crime bender that we've been on for the last several episodes here then uh, you will definitely like my book hunt manual you should check that out you can find some free excerpts on the website as well. In some of the last episodes, we talked about uh, possession from the Jungian perspective, you know, Carl Jung, analytic psychology. We also uh, talked about some killers like Israel Keys. We talked about uh, Gary Heidnick and what was his name? Harrison Graham. Um, people torturing other people in their uh, in their homes in Philadelphia in the 80s. He's talked about some schizophrenic killers. Um, and the last couple episodes, we talked about Michael Alleg, um, Party Monster. You know, Macaulay Culkin uh, was in that movie about his story. And we also did the kind of little-known um, story of Pedro Rodriguez Filo, uh, who some call the Brazilian Punisher. That was a hell of an episode. Very wild. Uh, and this one is not going to be very less wild, honestly. We're talking about Kuklinski today, the Iceman himself. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about Kuklinski is because there was so much buildup in the last episode with the uh, good old Brazilian Punisher. Now, for those that didn't hear it, he's also called uh, things like the Brazilian Dexter because this guy is supposed to, and as far as we know with the uh, the the records that we do have, has only killed criminals to one degree or another. Uh, pretty much always involved with either drug trafficking or dealing or like organized crime related things. But we also don't have um, a whole lot of information on this guy. And so uh, it kind of begs the question, how much of the the glamour, quote unquote, is going to rub off as the story um, is flushed out uh, to the public more and more? And I don't know, but I suspect that there will be some sort of glamour rubbed off indeed because that's exactly what happens with Kuklinski 
Um, you know, if you've just heard Kuklinski's name in passing, you might understand him as a prolific mafia hitman that was just as successful as a hitman as he was as a father um, in the sense that he was a good family man in general. That is not the case. He was actually a terrible family man, and he lorded over his family like they were his only possessions. So uh, what you could say about Kuklinski, though, is that he probably killed, well, let's see, some people say 100, some people say all the way up to like 250 or something. Um, I think anywhere beyond 200 is pretty preposterous. Uh, and I think it might even be less than that. But it's hard to say um, how much – it's hard to say how full of shit Kuklinski really is. Uh, that's going to be part of this conversation is us trying to figure this out. But we do like uh, – like last episode, we do have a plenty of material to work with and a way more than last episode. Kuklinski's story is – a, a perfect example of the spiraling chasm that can be true crime research where it gets into you know almost conspiracy theory level territory and not like Kuklinski was maybe CIA I don't know you might be able to find someone making that case out there uh but it would definitely not be true uh but more so just in the sense of you're looking into all these different angles I mean it's just the archetypal case cracking right um, trying to figure out, trying to paint a picture from so many different viewpoints, so many different characters, so many different opinions. Um, and, you know, sometimes there's facts that don't add up and sometimes, uh, we have to take, you know, the killer's word for it. Sometimes they were the only person there, you know, after the murder. So what else are we going to go on? But that doesn't mean that we don't uh, take it all with a grain of salt. So I encourage you, as always, but as a reminder, take these things with a grain of salt. But, you know, Kuklinski said just outright lies like, um, you know, he's claimed to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. He's claimed to uh, have killed, I believe, Roy DeMeo, who was um, one of his hitman contractor dealers, like his middleman. Um, for the Gambino crime family contracts that he would take out. Okay, so we'll get into a bit of a timeline. Um, but first, for those that don't know, Kuklinski is said to be one of the most prolific hitmen of all time. And he also, when to tease this a little bit, was said to have worked with this homicidal contract killer ice cream man uh, by the name of Robert Prange who drove a Mr. Softy ice cream truck. And there's a quote in here where Kuklinski says he will go out and give ice cream to the kids and likely kill one of their fathers later that day. Um, so, And this is the guy that taught Richard about cyanide and um, explosives and other things. So uh, this is just another one of those stories that uh, just seems absolutely, how could it be true? But let's talk about... Um, Richard's upbringing first and um and the upbringing that he brought to his own family that he created um so 
I mean, not surprisingly, Richard was, uh, he was beaten as a child. His father was an extreme alcoholic. Um, I believe he had one brother and one sister. The sister was known to be the normal one because his brother, Joseph, um, was actually serving life in prison for the sexual assault of a young girl um, whom which he threw off the roof afterward. So sick people here. Richard never did those things, but he was definitely a very sick person. Um, and says he grew up, you know, very fearful and timid. He was picked on not only by his father, um, and his mother, who he, 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 in interviews, he never even refers to them as mom or dad. He, he really d- just hates these people. Doesn't even consider them his parents, except for technically speaking. Um, so his father, or his father would beat him. His mother wouldn't really do anything about it. She didn't seem very nurturing at all, and uh, the world around him was very, uh, just trying to, you know, squash him under their boot. So, if you feel bad for him, um. Well, I'm not going to say that you shouldn't feel bad for a young kid because um, I think this is perhaps the only time where you could feel bad for Kuklinski because I think everyone makes that decision at some point where they decide, I'm no longer going to consider this an option. Um, The fact that I don't have to be violent. You know, nonviolence is no longer on the table. Uh, I'm just committing completely to violence and doing whatever it takes to be the dominator. Um, I feel for the kid that had to make that decision. I don't feel for the adult that is fully entrenched in that decision. But even so, what I was going to say is it's sometimes even hard to feel bad for the kid um, when young Richard is doing things like supposedly, you know, here's a trigger warning, um, tying cats tails together and throwing them over a telephone wire, like shoes to watch them shred each other to pieces. Uh, he would do things like he said he would kick dogs off rooftops. Um, he would throw cats into his, uh, apartment complex incinerator. He just wanted to watch things die. And he wanted to feel control. And there's one specific story where there was a group of bullies who were waiting for him outside. And one day, he, it seems like this is where he made the decision. He took uh, something, I believe it was like an iron rod that was hanging in a closet, you know, to put your uh, your hangers on and whatnot, um, or something to that effect. It was like a like a steel rod. And he went out there and he whooped some ass and sent a couple of them running. And um, from then on, uh, made effort to cultivate a persona that people feared. And it was not long after that he ended up killing a guy who was um, another one of his tormentors. This guy was a loudmouth heckler. Uh, Richard was a little older at this point, but he hadn't killed anyone yet. Well, this guy had embarrassed him in a in a in a bar one night that he liked to frequent 
And he also was super drunk, so he went to sleep it off in his car. Um, not Richard. I think this guy's name was Charlie. Um, so what Richard did is he basically threw a Molotov cocktail into that guy's open window while he was sleeping and let the guy burn to death. Said he could hear a scream from a block away as he walked. And eventually he started dealing in uh, pornography. He started, um, you know, hustling and running on the streets more. He had his own little gang. I believe he called them coming up roses. They had some rose tattoos. Um, and eventually worked his way into contract killing through Roy DeMeo. We'll talk about Roy DeMeo in just a second, but let's consider a little bit of um, Richard's family life. While he's doing all this, he met his wife, Barbara. Um, through his illicit trades, he actually is making a reasonable amount of money. So they settle down um, and they uh, enjoy the suburban life. And for instance, I mean, this is, this spans throughout his, uh, his life, but um, he married Barbara in 1961. They lived in uh, Dumont, New Jersey. And people called them an all American family. Now, Richard was not um, a good father. He was a good provider. You can give him that. Um, and I think it is absolutely true to say that Richard did have, you know, the all-American family. He had the quote-unquote American dream. But I think uh, what's most telling about that is how hollow both of those statements are. If a ruthless psychopathic contract killer can get um, the American dream, and the all-American family, then um, I don't know how how impressive of a bar it really is. And if anything, um, it's certainly just material, right? There's uh, there's no disputing that part. And, you know, for whatever credit it's worth, Richard did the regular fatherly duties for the most part. He was attentive to his children. He changed diapers. He stayed up um, with them while they were sick. Um, he was romantic with his wife. He would give her bouquets of flowers. He would make reservations to her favorite restaurants and have her favorite songs play when she walked through the door, reportedly. But on the uh, on the flip side of that, um, one time, uh, Barbara says that um, she awoke to find Richard trying to smother her with a pillow. Another time, she came out of the shower to find him crouching in the bedroom, pointing a gun at her. Um Another time, he tried to run her down with a car, and three times, he slugged her so hard, he broke her nose. Um, in an interview, Kuklinski claimed that um, he would never kill a child and, quote, would most likely, uh, most likely wouldn't kill a woman, unquote. So, not totally reassuring there. Um, however, according to one of his daughters, he once told her that he would uh, have to kill her and her two siblings should he happen to beat her mother to death in a fit of rage at the same time his wife barbara has stated that he never actually did hurt the children okay so this guy was uh um clearly a high functioning um psychopath for sure but that's not to say he didn't have any emotions 
you know, uh, through all the the interviews, the the bragging and horrible details of uh, people dying, Kuklinski showed emotion only once. He said, I've never felt sorry for anything I've done other than hurting my family. The only thing I feel sorry for. I'm not looking for forgiveness and I'm not repenting. No, I'm wrong. And he sniffles and says, I am wrong. I do want my family to forgive me. Oh boy, I ain't going to make it through this one. Oh shit. See, it, this is him starting to tear up. He's not bawling. I've seen this bit. He is tearing up though. Um, He says, this would never be me. This would not be me. Uh, but I feel for my family. You see the Iceman crying, not very macho, but I've hurt the people that mean everything to me. The only people that meant anything to me. It is worth noting that um, Kuklinski in these interviews has had quite some time to sit in prison. Um, they've also got him on some uh, prescription drugs like antidepressants and mood stabilizers. So I, it, it, it is worth noting that I think he's very much right. Um, he would not have been able to get to that point had he continued to be a hitman or even live on the streets. I think prison has given him some interesting reflection that his life would have never allowed time for otherwise. Now, that being said, doesn't matter much, unfortunately. But it is worth putting on record. Now, let's talk about the ways that uh, Richard killed a little bit. Now, supposedly through getting um, a little bit of a reputation around town, he uh, he starts getting involved in business with, as I mentioned, Roy DeMeo, um, a one-time a butcher's apprentice and probably the most feared hitman in uh, the Gambino crime family. DeMeo saw that um, Kuklinski, named the Polak on the streets, seemed to have a knack for killing people. Um, and Kuklinski, you know, they talked about it. He admitted that he'd do just about anything for money. So DeMeo took him to a place where they spotted a man out walking his dog. Um, and this is something that is not corroborated as far as I know. So this is one of those stories where we just take Kuk uh, Kuklinski's word for it. But uh, without a thought and on command, uh, Kuklinski walked by the man walking his dog and then turned and shot him, uh, which was an initiation. And uh, DeMeo brought him deeper into the fold of what was known as um, the Gambino hit crew um, that ran out of the Gemini Lounge. And these guys worked what uh, they like to call the Gemini method, where they basically ran a fully functioning club. And up top, there was an apartment that was all about it was um, it was like a butcher shop for mafia contract killing body disposal. So, you know, we're talking about um, hanging people in bathtubs, letting the blood drain from them, chopping them up into pieces wrapping them up and tossing them in different dumpsters all around the city, stuff like that all the time. Um, and here's some more quotes. Um, in fact, DeMeo had a strange assembly line approach to his killings. According to a former associate, the target person would walk into the club. Um, he'd be shot by one person, wrapped in a towel by another, and stabbed in the heart by yet a third person. 
Then he'd be cleaned up, drained of blood, laid out on a pool liner, hacked into pieces that were packaged like meat and tossed into a dump. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kuklinski knew he had to be careful, and once, for no apparent reason, he was nearly annihilated by the paranoid DeMeo. Yet when DeMeo's renowned temper and mania for killing became disorganized and conspicuous, he fell out of favor with the Gambinos. Um, a hit was put on him, and eventually he was found shot to death in the trunk of his car in January of 1983. Uh, while by some reports, Nino uh, Gagui did the hit, Kuklinski smiles at the idea that it might have been done by him. He outlived his usefulness, was Kuklinski's comment. And uh, no, I don't think Kuklinski killed him. But we'll do a bit more dissecting of this story. A part of Kuklinski's story is not just telling the timeline, but then trying to, as I, uh, I, I teased a little bit earlier, parse through all the data. What's legit, what's not, who's full of shit, who's not. Um, so I'm just going to keep going through this timeline a little bit. We'll get to a commercial break before too long here. And then we'll um, do some further analysis. So, and I'll give a little bit of a teaser. Um, there are some people who question how much affiliation Kuklinski really had to uh, the Gemini Lounge and the Gambinos. And that's kind of where the conspiracy angle comes in. Um, I, it, it, I do think, I think there's enough evidence to show that Kuklinski was affiliated with the Gemini Lounge. Um, he, there's a good chance he is exaggerating the degree, you know, maybe he just had a few hits. Maybe he was just a guy on the outskirts that they called. Like, here's the thing. I do think Kuklinski was a guy they called when they needed some extra muscle, um, some muscle that no one really knew the face of. Uh, you know, a wild card. Uh, because there was use for these wild card hitmen in the uh, in in the mafia uh, textbook, so to speak. So um, that was definitely a tool that these kinds of people kept in their tool belt to have this wild card, a random guy that they knew could get the job done, and then they had their old reliables. Uh, so. Whatever be the case, I do think that there is some truth in here, but how much, um, we don't know for sure, because there are several people, there are people who say that they knew Kuklinski, but there are just as many people um, who say they had never even heard Kuklinski's name before, and these are like made men, you know, it, mafia made men, if, if, if you are not familiar with your organized crime lingo. So it's weird that if Kuklinski was so prolific, no one knew his name. It would make a lot more sense for so few people to know his name if um, he was maybe less prolific and 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 therefore easier um, found it easier to keep a lower profile. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. As the as the lore goes, Kuklinski actually found a lot of tips and tricks uh, for killing people, or at least just inspiration from Looney Tunes, you know, Wiley e. Coyote, Bugs Bunny, all these, um, all these pull a giant mallet out behind your back and, you know, go crazy um, in a whirling tornado. Uh, Kuklinski really liked this. He said, um, 
he did things like, you know, he said he he'd like to try and stay inventive and creative. Um, very weirdly, uh, you know, he used firearms, ice picks, hand grenades, crossbows, chainsaws. Um, he talks about, I don't think we have any evidence of this, but he talks about using a bomb attached to a remote controlled toy car. Um, but of course he used cyanide solution, whether it is injected or sprayed or put on food. That was most certainly his favorite. Um, and he liked to dispose of bodies through either putting them, oftentimes, you know, he would do the DeMeo Gemini method. Um, he would just stick them in 55-gallon drums and toss them. Um, he would also, um, this is where he gets the name the Iceman. He would freeze these bodies, sometimes for as long as a couple of years, and then kick them out. Um, let them thaw and completely throw off the time of death. Now, there are some people that say that Kuklinski also um, only killed people because of contract killings. Or at least did that once he started becoming a contract killer. Um, none of those are true. In fact, there's one particular story where he talks about wanting to try, uh, test out a crossbow. So... He's driving, um, he's either at a stoplight or a stop sign or pulling out of a parking lot because he's he's in his car, but, um, you know, not cruising down the street. And he asks a guy for directions walking down the, the sidewalk. And so as soon as the guy comes up to him and bends down to look through the window, Kuklinski shoots him with a crossbow, says that the arrow went halfway into his head and, uh, you know, um, experiment successful, I guess. Fucked up. Oh, and if it's not scary enough, um, Kuklinski, if you don't know, is six foot five, 300 pounds. So this guy is a true monster. Here's a story um, on his rise into contract killing. Um, Kuklinski was known to, um, it was said that he stashed pallets of paraphernalia pornography on someone's property um and in order to do a sale and when he came back uh the guy didn't have the porn and he didn't have the money either so what kuklinski did is um he came back with some road flares and there were a few other people with him but it was said that no one was uh prepared for how far richard was going to take this so they tied the guy up, and um, one by one, Richard burned his feet to the bone with the road flare. But the guy would not talk. And um, after his feet were bone, Richard moved to the guy's testicles and melted them one by one. And then was going to go for the guy's uh, Johnson, and that's when the guy tapped out and said, the pallets are hidden over here on my property. Oh my God. Can you imagine losing both your feet and your balls? And then finally you tap out. Why would you even bother to tap out at that point? I think I'd just wait for death. Maybe that's what he was trying to do and then physically couldn't anymore. I don't know. I don't want to ever have to 
wrap my mind around that one. Um, Kuklinski also has this wild story where he talks about um, he had this hit that was a time limit, and uh, he didn't know how to get the guy in the right positioning within the time frame. So what he does is he tries to blend in with the crowd. He wears some, um, and, and he tries to go in like the opposite direction in terms of blending and be so flamboyant that no one really notices you. And um, so he goes into this nightclub. Uh, apparently he's got like a big Afro on. He's got um, some like platform shoes. So he's all taller and he's just dancing and he works his way slowly out to the dance floor after mingling for a little bit and just happens to prick this guy, inject him with cyanide on the dance floor. And um, he died of what looked like a heart attack right there on the floor. And um, no one was any bit the wiser. There's actually also a story of Richard. Basically, he says surprising someone by um, showing a grenade in his hand in a handshake and then tossing it behind a counter to blow up his target. Uh, so um, I remember another story where Kuklinski talks about, I'm sure he did this multiple times, but um, he would just buy a meal for people, you know, a group that he was, um, you know, ingratiated with, ready to take out. And he would um, just lace every one of their burgers with cyanide and watch them all drop one by one while they all ate a meal together. And um, also uh, speaking to the fact that he was not just a, a contract killer, he was just a serial killer in general. A couple things. Uh, one, he would he was known for at least in retrospect, like we know now that he um, he had a penchant for um, setting up porn or drug deals with people and then getting there with no product, killing them, and just taking their money. He also, we have no evidence of this, and uh, there's, I don't think any way anyone could ever really follow up on this because of the nature of the crimes, unfortunately, but... Kuklinski also says in like this weird Polish Patrick Bateman, less rich style, <laughs> um, he talks about going around the streets of New York City angry, um, murdering homeless people at night. And he says he did that with a lot of people. So if you take um, stories like that into account and then you believe all of his contract killings, that's how you could theoretically get up to numbers of like 200. I don't think that's the case, though. He's got this one really fucked up story where. Here's a quote. He says he, he had this guy who's about ready to kill him. The guy was begging and praying to God. Quote, um, Kuklinski says, so I told him he could have a half hour to pray to God. And if God could come down and change the circumstances, he would have that time. But God never showed up and he never changed the circumstances. And that was that. It wasn't too nice. That's one thing. I shouldn't have done that one. I shouldn't have done it that way. Oddly remorseful there. And I think... Um, we're going to have to dive into a commercial break here. After this, we're going to talk just a little bit more about some of Kuklinski's 
um, murder methods. Then we're going to talk about his friend, Mr. Softy, the contract killer ice cream truck driver. Then we'll wrap up the story and um, do some analysis afterward. Don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy. I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. We'll be right back after this. Humans turned stone in the gravel pit Found a true scroll, but it's hard to unravel it Had a choice to be a murderer or a maverick Ha, sitting on the dark side of the rainbow Empty water buckets yelling fuck it to the angel Four corners of death, extra breath, take an angle Electric chair, 3K style, with the strangle Yeah, that metaphor might have been too dense But everybody understand a pocket with two cents Brain crash, only know a couple with few dents Trapped in the forest and the face on the they got our minds in the box With the keys to the locks Crooked police cars breeze through the blocks I'm running through the alley with the trees and the socks Let them face down, never heard freeze when they shot Breathe the Babylon air, come and travel on air Looking down on the earth from a magical sphere I am the seven, the fella still trapped in the six Ain't no fun laying on clouds, so I'm back in the mix 24 karat mining in the mind, 24-7, 40 ounces, 28 grams of heaven, weight on the shoulder, boulder heavy, create error fields, point nine infinity, this is my forever shield, counting Dracula is counting your votes, 1984, sonic murder she wrote, 2012 Aquarius, 13 floors in your ghost, give me a 3.5, Ratios of the rich versus poor 16 bars killed the verse You got 8 like Duga waves in war 11-11 upon the digital clock The hand strikes 12 The slippers were lost 93 to 98 I stole my favorite tapes Recorded college radio From several waves 30 minutes, 4.30 every day Channel 29 was bumping the top 5 And none of it was jive The culture was alive until the millions arrived The mainstream switched the dream into stride Mike check 1-2 I'm getting revived Do the numbers We will always survive Fuck at the division Of the day Into uh, 12 portions Which was subdivided Into 2 times 12 So we have the 24 hour day This was their creation 12 was their unit Hello Is this thing on? Okay Please edit this out for me Um But uh My name is Steve Buscemi, formerly known as uh, Jefferson Tillamook Slinger. As many of you know, I am a big fan of the Highlander movies and television show, but many of you may not know how confusing and fucking stupid that the, uh, that the whole uh, storyline is. And I'm here to tell you, as a public service announcement to all them them youngins out there that don't understand the Highlander franchise, it's okay. You're not alone. And if it makes you feel any better, basically the director's cut of the first movie and the TV show are the only things you really need to pay attention to. Everything else is just retconned bullshit. And uh, it's a mockery. Um, so just forget about You know, the second and third movies and all those sci-fi channel movies, it was all not good. Um, It just served to confuse people, and even the people involved with those projects have pretty much said, don't think of those as an official story, so don't worry, maybe you can rest easy at night. 
But the fact of the matter is, the Highlander series might be perhaps the biggest botch in all of nerd culture history. Um, uh, next to things like uh, the movie Jumper with Hayden Christensen. Could have been great, was not very great. Also, uh, Die Hard was a Christmas movie, and I am a classy movie critic. <coughs> oh, God. I am Apex Monsoon, the cosmic ghost pirate. The last uh, quarter of sales have not been too great for my dolphin pirate tarot deck. Not many of you have been interested. And, uh, you know, that's fine. I've, I'm brimming with good ideas. I'm a pirate anyway. Arg! So, er, uh, what I've done is, um, I've created Apex Monsoon's Cosmic Pirate Space Rum. Spiced Space Rum, matey. That's right. I've taken Caribbean Rum, Kirkland Caribbean Rum. And I've thrown that, um, that pulpery that's sprayed with synthetic cannabinoids that you can get at gas stations where it's not illegal now. And, um, I've got that floating in the Kirkland spiced rum. And I've also, um, thrown a little mini umbrella in there and put a cork on top. And it's my Apex Monsoon Cosmic Pirate Space Rum. Get it now at chippypetson.government forward slash ddu. Urgh! Do it now! I'm a pirate, matey! Yeah, okay. Cool. Hello, everybody. Bloody hell, mate. It's, uh, it's, in, it's your girlfriend, Silverback Commando here. Um, so... You know, uh, I still sell in the old uh, dolphin glue in there gel, but um, you know, um, gotta do a little bit of a PSA here because um, I do not have enough uh, dolphin grade LSD strips to be supplying uh, every single order of the dolphin glue in there gel with. So if you received a uh, uh, an order with the promise of the strip of LSD and you, you didn't get it. Uh, sorry, he, he, I'm, um, I did not expect so many people to notice and I just don't have enough to share. So, also, I've, I've got to go back to the drawing board a little bit, I think, because I think I might have been giving too many of these dolphins, these dolphins, a bit too much of the LSDs um, because one of them recently popped on me like a balloon. Oh, I, uh, not sure. I'm gonna have to figure that one out a bit. Uh, but in the meantime, you can still get the uh, dolphin glue in there, Joe. Um, for holding on to your toupees or your dentures or, or making your toys creepy crawl. That's it for now. Take care, everybody. Hello, everybody. I'm glad to be speaking with you again. I just finished polishing off a bowl of DMT, and my brain feels like a light bright protendo. Just so you know, Muscle Tornado has heard your requests for DVDs and not VHS tapes of my uh, dolphin safety, no, 
alligator safety and hook hand combat techniques. Um, but I've I've sunk all my funds into tapes. I knew that records were coming back, um, but I I thought that tapes would be as well. And they're not. Um, but anybody that has Walkmans out there, you can definitely get uh, my hook hand combat alligator safety techniques. I was uh, recently reading online about how alligators communicate through a series of whistles and clicks, and I think I may incorporate that into my next volume edition. But uh, I still can't make DVDs or CDs, I don't, I don't even really know how to. Um, but I promise that I will be pressing some vinyl with the next release. This is Muscle Tornado, over and out. Thank you. Play bottle. It was a stone group, my man. You are the most white. Yeah, right, just get the fuck out, man. Let's go. Welcome back to Black Hoodie Alchemy, folks. We're talking about Richard the Iceman Kuklinski a little bit. And um, before the commercial break, we were kind of starting to wrap up how and uh, what he would kill with. There's one story that uh, Kuklinski tells that I for sure do not buy, and no one else seems to either. And the story goes that he was doing some sort of um, a porn deal trying to get some money from these people, went to this house, saw a bunch of um, children in transit of sex trafficking. He said he was disgusted, but he didn't uh, do anything the first time. He just left. Um, He comes back a second time for a same business arrangement, sees all the children, is so disgusted that he kills everybody there and frees every last child. There's just no way this could have happened. There would have had to be at least some sort of police record about this. There's too much going on um, for that to not have um, really raised some eyebrows. Is it theoretically possible? Sure, but I don't buy it. Um, that's uh, uh, That was Richard trying to you know make himself out to be something like the Punisher there. I mean, he's got a couple other stories like that that just, I don't know. It seemed like him trying to paint himself in a good light. Now, there's one story that I've been waiting to tell, because this is particularly crazy and horrifying. And I'm not sure if this is true or not either. I don't think there's any evidence to support or refute this. And the fact that Kuklinski seems to fabricate his own stories it definitely seems like this could not be true. But, um, you know, it's definitely theoretically possible. All the pieces here, um, you can look into evidence in, you know, different, like, uh, I believe the World Wars in particular, there is plenty of case evidence to show that as Terrifying as it is, um, rats will eat human flesh, and it doesn't have to be dead. And so uh, that's how Kuklinski would dispose of some of these bodies. He uh, he was supposed to be an avid hunter, um, apparently of humans and animals. 
And when he was hunting in um, New York, he found this big old cave filled with rats, just a whole colony. And that was where they staked out. And so uh, Richard made note of this. And one time he uh, he was given a, a, um, a request by... Um, I believe it was a it was a mafia made man there, and the guy said that uh, a young guy was dating his daughter, and this young guy um, didn't seem to have any sort of interest in taking it seriously at all. And the father had warned him the guy wasn't taking him seriously, so he sent Richard after him. And uh, what Richard did was he kidnapped this guy, brought him to the rat cave. Um, cinched his balls so tight that they started bleeding and threw him into the cave, let the rats finish him off. Didn't bother to kill him, but he died. And uh, Richard said he did this several times with several different people. And uh, not only that, but he said that he brought his friend um, Robert Prange here at one point, and he started filming the rats eating the people with a super eight camera. And he would go back later and watch this film. And he said, the reason he did this was because he wanted, he, this was the closest thing in his life. It seems that had come to being outright distasteful, even to him. So he created this horrifying meditation where he would film the people dying and watch it and try and elicit some sort of emotion out of himself. He said he did not like watching him. He really did not like watching him. And it made him uncomfortable. He called it distasteful. Um, But he also said strangely that he couldn't quite put his finger on what all about it was the worst part for him. Which just shows how disassociated he is to begin with. All right, so before we move on to the end of Richard's story, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Softy, Robert Prange. From all the different stories pieced together, um, it's evident that Kuklinski knew Prange. Uh, so they weren't lying about that part. But again, we don't um, have a lot of info on this. So um, we have to take Richard's word for it in uh, to some degree. And uh, for a little while there, we only had Richard's word to go on. But we do have evidence to show that Prange existed. Um, we even have an article to show that um, he died. Here's a little... Uh, written excerpt here the only verification that prange existed and may have known kuklinski is that an ice cream man by the name of robert prange was killed in his ice cream truck shot twice in the chest on august 9th 1984 his body was found hanging out of uh the hanging out the side of his ice cream truck window the real prange it turns out was facing trial in new jersey for bombing the front house um for bombing the front of his ex-wife's house and making terroristic threats against his ex-wife and son. And <clears throat> this guy sounds like a genuine supervillain, even more than Kuklinski. 
this guy sounds crazy. Um, he's interested in uh, demolitions. He had a background in the military. Um, he was kicked out of college for uh, filming and uh, like sh- displaying uh, homemade pornography that he made. Um, he, as we mentioned before, would sell ice cream to the children and murder their parents later. This guy was sick, very sick. Um, and Kuklinski said of him that he taught him a lot, but he was very crazy. So for Kuklinski to call someone very crazy is notable, I think. And, you know, you can look more into the story of Prange and w- what Kuklinski said he did with him. Um, they almost have this strange reverse buddy cop movie going on for a little bit there where they're helping each other out with tools and with um, hits and body disposal and all of this stuff. But Kuklinski says at some point, and this is a story, it also uh, just doesn't line up with the newspaper. Um, the, the Some of the only evidence we do have, because now that we have that newspaper clipping, um, there is more evidence that he existed. Not a lot, but we do find more like where he went to college and things. Um, Kuklinski goes Punisher again and said that he had to kill Prange because Mr. Softy here was ready to finish a contract killing and he was growing less and less um, interested in any sort of vague code or ethics and instead of just taking out the people that were in his contract, he figured he'd basically literally poison the water hole and take out a neighborhood or whatever, take out a, a large swath of people. And um, that was too much for Kuklinski. So shortly thereafter, um, he killed him. And this was also after Prange had incessantly tried to hire Kuklinski to murder his um, ex-wife and son, which Richard said he would not do. And here's some interesting bits this is taken from, I'll put this in the show notes so you can see it for yourself. You'll have to do some digging because this is a blog that um, it's not like it's extremely popular. But if you look into the fine details of the Iceman story and you're trying to look into people that might not believe him, uh, this is one of the first blogs that come up. And the uh, the the comments are really ripe with interesting dialogue you know more extensive than youtube comments there's people actually trying to you know there's a little bit of um attacks but most of it is just actually people trying to hash out the case a little bit and you can find people you know obviously take all of this with a grain of salt but you can find people who are like i i was a former cop or i was on the street i you know i was a small time two-bit criminal um, and i had heard kuklinski's name stuff like that um, where unless these people are doing performance art, there's no trollish angle to it. Um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't seem like a whole lot of payoff for them to be lying about this. They could go do something way more trollish with way more of a payoff. But again, I'm not saying to actually believe them. I'm just saying it's interesting. And part of that, uh, me saying all that is because allegedly the son of Robert Prange is in these, um, blog comments. And it's it's interesting enough to read a little bit here. So I posted or uh, I collaged a few of his smaller comments together here. 
says, I am the son of Robert Prange. Uh, there is ample evidence of his existence if you look around. His murder did make the papers, uh, but nonetheless, Kuklinski was mostly full of shit. Check the uh, Social Security Death Index. He was born in December 45, died August 84. His brother, an identical twin, Kevin, was a lawyer, as is um, Kevin's son, Robert. Um, they moved to California around 1986. He did indeed own a Mr. Softy truck, and uh, no, a body could not be stored in the freezers because they're way too small. As for being a hitman, um, highly doubtful, um, but he did terrorize us. He blew up the front of our house and was missing from court for those charges when his body was found. I imagine he thought Kuklinski was full of shit and fucked around with him. My father was crafty and was able to build explosives and had a background in some chemistry, probably the genesis of the cyanide BS. Dig around, you will find info, and it should support your conclusions on Kuklinski being full of shit. Not because Robert Prongate didn't exist, but because he did. Um, and then he goes on to say um, that he keeps a low profile. He doesn't really, he's not really interested in true crime per se. Doesn't, certainly doesn't um, highlight the fact that he's Prongay's son in his regular life. And he also says that he's pretty sure um, Kuklinski was paid to follow them around a little bit. The son and the ex-wife. So, and so he doesn't even believe his father was a contract killer. I do think um, there's enough evidence to suggest that he was into that kind of stuff. But again, I think um, the same running theme as the rest of this episode, how much of it is true. You could take one tiny truth and then, you know, burgeon that into a whole cornucopia of lies. You know, it's not that hard. But um, it's even of police opinion that, this guy and Kuklinski were working together and that Kuklinski did learn a lot from him. So how does um, Kuklinski get caught? Well, he's thinking about retiring, but he doesn't have enough money, not by his standards. So he's continuing to work. He says he's murdered every friend. Uh, he said he's murdered every friend that he's ever made. Um, and as the story goes, there was one friend that he... I guess you could say never got around to murdering. And his name was George Malaband. K uh, Kuklinski had known him for a long time, said that he actually liked him, was one of the only people that he ever actually liked. Uh, and this guy had a bit of a gambling problem. Kuklinski had um, vetted for him to some loan sharks, and now he wasn't paying those sharks back. So Kuklinski tried to... Um, put a little bit of friendly pressure on him, say, hey, man, you're making me look bad. You've got to get this done with. And Malaband was clearly losing it a little bit too. He reportedly not only said no, but said, hey, leave me alone, Richard. I know where you live. And you don't make threats like that to Richard the Iceman Kuklinski. And so uh, Richard says he went on a drive with him not too long later and asked him why he had threatened his family like that. Maliban says, well, you know, because I know that it'll get you to back off because I know I care, you care about your family and I just don't need this heat. And I knew you'd back off. And Richard said, well, you were dead wrong about that and pulled out a gun and shot him right there. Um, I believe in the car. And uh, Maliban was a huge dude. And uh, Kuklinski was prepared to get rid of his body in another 55 gallon drum. But this dude was too big. And uh, so he he tried the best he could. He got him in there, but it was too tight a fit, and it wasn't really uh, 
all the way sealed. And so when he dumped them in the river, whichever river it was, might have not even been a river. I actually can't remember. But I know that um, it was found not that long later. It had partially it had come apart a little bit, and you could see the body. And once they had identified that it was George Maliband, they knew that Kuklinski was the last person to see him. House of Cards starting to crumble. Meanwhile, there's an undercover cop who um, has been assigned to try and get some more dirt on Kuklinski. He goes to Kuklinski looking to hire him for a contract <clears throat> to take out what he calls a rich Jewish kid so he can take all his money. And um, Kuklinski really, he doesn't like this guy very much, but he actually sees an opportunity to kill the Jewish kid, to kill this guy, and to take all of their money. And he actually finds this guy annoying. Uh, but because of this, he starts telling him all his secrets anyway. You know, how he kills people with cyanide, all these different things. There's uh, there's police tapes about this. And um, it was at a certain point, they, they started realizing, man, he is really spilling his guts to us. It's got to be because he's going to kill me. So they work fast, and um, it does work out in their favor. They get enough evidence <clears throat> between all these different things to basically pull up on Kuklinski again while he's driving one day with Barbara in the car. They did this on purpose because they assumed and they assumed correctly that Kuklinski would want to go out in a blaze. Um, and they, But they took him without much of a fight since his wife was there. It even uh, The story even goes that he asked the officers to uncuff him and just let him walk so they could shoot him in the back. But of course they did not. And um, he ended up going to prison where he died, where he did those three um, HBO documentaries. And it's uh, it's very curious to note that it is said that Richard ended up dying of a rare disease of the heart called Kawasaki disease, which is said to only affect Japanese children for whatever reason. I don't know if it's a radiation thing or what. But it was very strange. He was known to have heart problems um, that expedited themselves very quickly towards the end. And um, it's interesting because Kawasaki disease apparently is very similar. The symptoms are strikingly similar to mercury poisoning. So there were a lot of people who still think to this day that he might have been killed. And the biggest running theory is that it was um, it was some sort of uh, contract killing because he was spilling his guts in all these HBO documentaries and also because um, he had just spilled his beans on um, a contract killing he did back in the day um, uh, where he killed a cop. Um, and he, it had to do with uh, Sammy the Bull Gravano, who was a, uh, a capo, I believe, or an underboss in the uh, Gambino crime family. Um, so, but Sammy disputes this. He says, I never heard of Richard Kuklinski. This never happened. Uh, and when Kuklinski died, they sort of just let the sleeping dog lie on that case. So we never really got uh, full closure, but Sammy the Bull was a major stool pigeon at that point. He had already served his time uh, for his mafia-related things, and um, he went back to prison a second time for drug-related things, and he's out again because he. it seemed like he stopped being like a serious enforcer but was still involved in um, trafficking. 
And if I remember correctly, it was during the the trying of his trafficking that this um, police shooting comes up from back in the day. So it does seem like there would potentially be a reason for Sammy Gravano to lie about this. It's also just weird, though, because he was already uh, he had already spilled his guts. So why would he? Other than that reason, and is that reason really enough? He was already so far down the rabbit hole, but it might have been um, there. It, it might have provided opportunity for police to put him away longer. And if that was the case, I'm sure he wouldn't have um, admitted to it. So we don't know. It's also just as likely. There's a lot of people in prison um, who, you know, are crafty and angry and have time on their hands. So anybody could have killed Kuklinski. But it's kind of it does seem like he was potentially poisoned. Even that, though, is not a certain. It's also um, a, a terrible cherry on top. Um, well, I mean, you know, good for the wife, but just a, a, a bad piece to a bad story. It's all crazy and terrible. Uh, but Kuklinski had resuscitation orders, but um, his wife overrode those. And uh, when, he, when, his, when he went into cardiac arrest and died, his wife let him die. I believe she was his ex-wife at that point, but still. And that was that was March 2006. All right, uh, we are getting towards the end here. So for some final wrap-ups, um, I've got some quotes that I think are interesting from Anthony Bruno. He is a uh, mafia true crime writer. He wrote one of the uh, few books on Kuklinski and got to uh, talk with him in prison, had a bit of a rapport with him. And I think some of his quotes about the rapport he had with Kuklinski are, are, uh, are, are worth part of the wrap up here. Was Kuklinski a monster? Yes, but there's nothing is always black and white. Um, one of the constant warnings I heard before I went to visit him at the prison was to look out for the quote-unquote shark look. That's when the eyes roll back and his face freezes for a split second. In a five-hour interview, I saw it twice. At one point, I brought up the subject of one of his daughters, and that set it off. Um, the other instance, he says, is kind of rambly, but he says, is going through notes um, about crimes. And uh, what I did was just back off and go to another topic when it happened. Uh, it's quick, but it sets you on your heels. When I first visited him, I interviewed for him for five and a half uh, hours or so, and the first half was terrible. I had the tape recorder running, and I could see that he was paying more attention to the tape than to me. His answers were clipped and unresponsive. About two, After about two hours, though, I said, we're not really getting anywhere, so I'm just going to pack up and go. As soon as the tape recorder was back in my briefcase, he started talking. I pulled out a yellow pad and started scribbling notes, and I think he liked the control. The more he talked, the more I scribbled, and that's when he started telling me lots of things. Uh, one thing that upsets people most is that Kuklinski has a human side. People didn't want to like him. They didn't want to know about his childhood or his tears over his family. People want their monsters black and white. And Bruno also says, periodically, I still hear from him. Um, he is the first Christmas card I get every year. He's very polite in his letters and a pretty good artist. Imagine the most gruesome tattoos that you can. That's the kind of art he does. 
skulls with confederate caps on creatures from hell things like that interesting um and when you see the interviews with him it's he's very terrifying and menacing and i've had two separate girlfriends now um you know and not experimentally just unrelated happen to be watching some kuklinski interviews and both of those ladies had very like visceral reactions they they he creeped them the fuck out um they did not like it at all when he would look towards the camera like into your eyesight very menacing dude um but uh, you can also see glimpses of him being very charismatic and there are some glimpses where you it struck me as like what's the most benign parallel universe version i could see of this guy and in a different world i could totally see richard kuklinski as that wisecracking smart ass um but also tough guy like pawn shop owner in new jersey or new york um i wish i i wish he had done that instead Um, final notes for if you are interested in checking out um, some of Kuklinski's interviews. There's a couple things. If he ever calls somebody my friend, it is supposed to mean that he's getting really pissed at you and he's about ready to break your neck. And also, if he starts clicking with his mouth, it's a tick. He's about ready to strangle you. I mean, not literally strangle, but, you know, he's about ready to really hurt you. And you can find those, you know, along with his, like, shark eyes, like, throughout interviews and stuff. And I do believe that is it, folks. What do you think about Kuklinski here? Full of shit? One of the most prolific mafia contract killers of all time? Or somewhere in between? I'm going to guess somewhere in between. But I invite you to look further. Um, and I also stress the fact that you will probably not find all of the answers here. This is... Um, an exercise in true crime and the folkloric, even mythological um, aspects of true crime stories. You know, there's inevitably going to be some big fish in these stories, but um, I think it goes without saying that Richard Kuklinski, the freaking Iceman, was an extremely dangerous, menacing person that had a prolific career as a... Um, a criminal in organized crime. And I think he killed a lot of people. Anything beyond that is sort of up for debate. I also think it's fair to say that he was, he was a child that was broken from an early age and learned to use his brokenness as an advantage you know, a psychiatrist in one of the documentaries clearly says that he has extreme paranoia uh, and antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy. So he was clearly raised from an early age to believe that everyone was out to victimize him um, and that the world was suffering in pain and that the only way he was ever going to um, be able to not be a victim was to make other people his victims. And as I said at the beginning of the episode, it's hard for me to have, um, to feel for a person that has given up on the choice on whether or not um, they should victimize other people. 
But up until you give up on that choice, I, I, I really feel for you because being a victim so consistently that your only recourse seems to be victimizing other people, that's not a cop-out. I mean, you shouldn't do it, and there's always a choice, but the crossroads of that mentality is not a cop-out. It's a natural thing, and the unnatural part is deciding actually to victimize people. But I get I get why you wouldn't want to be a victim anymore. I sure as fuck get that. And even though he might be 90% monster, uh, we can see a strong running 10% or so human. <clears throat> and it's sad. So, you know, like I've said in the last couple episodes now, hopefully reincarnation is a thing and Richard is refining his life, not murdering people elsewhere. But I think that's all I got for now, folks. What a what a curious story. Uh, certainly no black and white areas um, when you mash it all together. And if this episode uh, disturbed you a little bit, you know, go enjoy the small things. Go hang out with some friends. Go call some family. Go smoke some weed. Enjoy the small things. And that's going to be the end of our true crime bender. We're going to get into some other stuff, a likely esoteric and or paranormal next. I hope y'all enjoyed this episode and found it uh, full of interesting food for thought. Don't forget, I am Anthony Tyler. This is Black Hoodie Alchemy, and uh, I hope to hear from you next week. Take care, everybody.